You're listening to Extemporaneously, a podcast all about the job search and how to communicate effectively once you get that job. This week on the podcast, I got a chance to sit down with Catherine Vandenberg, a fearless and thoughtful leader that's been through a ton of transition in her career, by choice and sometimes not by choice. She's worked across multiple verticals and job functions, transitioned from being an employee to a founder, and then back to being an employee again. Catherine shares the way she managed these transitions by auditing her experiences, assessing risk, and creating career themes. Speaking of risk, the theme of safety came up a lot. We discussed comfort zones, creating emotional safety as leaders, and the missing sense of security she felt when she first founded her own company. We finally dive into some of the blind spots in today's hiring systems of resumes and interviews, especially for generalists like herself. This one goes deep, and I'm really excited for you to hear it. So here's my chat with Catherine. Hey, Catherine, welcome to Extemporaneously. Thank you. Great to be here. I'm so excited to chat with you. I met you not too long ago, but when we first had our conversation, I immediately gravitated towards your story and all the different changes that have happened and how you've really embraced your unique path. So I'm really excited to to chat with you today. I'm looking forward to this. I think it's going to be fun. Yeah, I, I'd love to kick us off just by hearing a little bit about your professional journey and some of the key milestones that you think are the most defining for your career. Well, I think I've I've got a pretty varied background. It's uh, It's certainly not your average linear path. I would say that I started my career in operations, working for a, a core location travel agency. I spent a few years there. The travel agency ended up going under after the 2008 market crash. So I had a bit of a career shift there, um, ended up making the decision to leave a few months before the company went under and went into financial services. In terms of that transition, I think that was really more, I needed a job than anything and was really trying to quantify what do I know that can transition into a new industry. And ultimately operations, there are a lot of transferable skills that that can move from industry to industry there. Uh, After that, I ended up going into telecom and doing some account management and service delivery there for a few years where I met my co-founder and we left to start a cybersecurity tech startup out of the Accelerator Center. A couple of years into that, and I had reached sort of a, a, a financial crossroads, I'll say. I have four children. And the reality is I didn't have the financial stability that I needed in order to devote the time to my company that was needed. And, uh, and, and I ended up making the choice to leave as well. After that, I went into financial services again as a, as a director in a transformation program. Worked out my contract there, went to become an independent entrepreneur for another few months as COVID hit. And the job market became pretty compressed and I had the opportunity to do quite a few interesting little projects as an entrepreneur. And then I went back into big finance, again, as a program director on a transformation project. And that's where I am now. (laughs) (laughs) That's so cool to to see, you know, how you transition between being an ops to going into account management, then becoming a founder and then 
finally going back into working for somebody else, there there's a lot of different transitions, sometimes by choice and sometimes mm-hmm. not by choice. Financial crisis, COVID hitting and all these yeah. different variables. When something like that happens, how do you take a step back and regroup? You know, what you said was, what did I know when you were thinking about transitioning after that first role in ops? How do you regroup and what did you do to really ground yourself and prepare yourself to look for that next opportunity? I mean, the first thing you do is, is or the first thing that I do is just take stock. You know, where am I? Where did I think I was going? And is there a way to get there? And if there isn't, then I think it's it's important to sit down and ask yourself what you want to achieve. And then who do you know that can help you get there? Because, you know, I, I know that there's a lot of talking about network and how important it is. And I really, really believe in that because most of the great opportunities I've had in my life have been as a result of a conversation that I've had with somebody or, uh, you know, spilling my guts out to a good friend and, and having them say, well, have you, have you tried this? And, oh, I see that you're really good at this. Do you enjoy it? I think that taking the time to really explore, first of all, you know, who you are and where you want to get in life. And then what skills do you already have? And, and what do you think you need to learn? And then who can help you? I think those are those are really the steps that I take in between in each transition is understanding who am I now, where do I want to go, and and who will help me, and who can I help? I think that's an important one too. Yeah, I think the idea of taking an audit of what you know already and the skill sets that you have is so important, especially if you're hoping to transition across different industries because you might not have the same title or a a title that isn't even parallel but if you can demonstrate the skills that you have through your past experiences that can really get you far in convincing let's say a hiring manager to really take a chance on you did you find that that was helpful for you as you were making those transitions yeah absolutely and i think uh, part of what was helpful is reframing my skill set to myself, right? Is so if I if I say, well, I'm really good at managing office logistics, but what does that mean in a in a greater sense, right? Um, that means I'm great at keeping track of details. I'm great at working with people. I'm great at ensuring that a system is managed effectively. And then as I moved forward in my career, I became better at systems overall and understanding how different systems fit together and then managing those systems. That has its foundations and operations, but it's also strategy. It's also account management. It's also people management, like understanding how your systems work and how your people work. And so I think being able to take a look at, okay, what does it mean to be good at operations or what does it mean to be good at strategy or finance or whatever? What are the underlying themes? I think making transitions, once you understand the themes of of your career is much easier because then you can see the similarities between industries. Yeah, it's, I agree completely. It's something that I think a lot of people don't necessarily think about, even if they're not transitioning between industries is it's really easy to say, like I did operations, 
But then if you can take a more granular look and really break it down, that will actually help you subcategorize the things that you're really good at. And those are the things that you can celebrate on the job search. So I completely agree with that. And when I work with people on, you know, finding the career stories, it's very similar of an approach of let's do like a really deep dive into what you did and what skills you had to leverage or develop to really help you bring impact to your employer. So I love this idea of kind of coming up with themes. It, it really lands well with me. Something that I was really curious about for you was that transition from, you know, working uh, in ops and then in telco and then becoming a founder and mm-hmm. what that transition was like. And then likewise, from transitioning from a founder to working again in, in finance uh, or in the financial sector. What were those transitions like and how did you find, you know, moving between working for yourself versus working for somebody else? That's a very complicated question. (laughs) When I was working in telco, um, I guess to take a step back, I'm the kind of person that I really like to learn new things all the time. I'm very curious. I want to know everything about everything. And of course, the further I get into that, the more I realize I know pretty much nothing about most things. That being said, I I was in a role that I felt like I was outgrowing. And because I worked for a smaller company, there really wasn't any opportunity for me to move up or even laterally. And so I ended up talking to my co-founder quite a lot. and, And we kept arriving back at, well, this isn't good enough. We want to make a difference. We want to do something big. We want to start a company to you know, help smaller businesses understand their what's going on with their security. And the more we talked, the bigger it got until we finally arrived at the point where we'd applied at the Accelerator Center and been accepted. And we were sort of at a crossroads. I wanted to focus on the business and I wanted to take that leap. But it was, um, it was a really difficult choice. I did end up leaving my job at the telco but taking that first step into the unknown was extremely unsettling. I think because I, I was aware that I didn't know most of the things that I needed to know in order to be a successful founder, um, that it took a lot of soul searching for me to decide that I was going to trust that when I stepped out into the unknown, that I would be able to learn the things that I needed in the time that I had. And I think that was really the core soul searching activity that took place when I was looking to leave my job at the telco and start a company myself is trusting that I would be able to learn what I needed in the time that I had. Yeah, it sounds to me like that leap of faith that you talked about is Obviously, something that I think a lot of founders, when they're first exploring whether or not it's something that they are interested in, is something that they're going to have to kind of take the plunge in. Do you think that that level of risk taking is for everyone? And if someone is interested or is maybe a little bit more risk averse, what would you say to them uh, if they were hoping to take a similar type of risk? I think that. Really, the idea of going back to the audit is it's a good place to start. So whether you're risk tolerant or risk averse, I think the first question to ask is, is your comfort zone comfortable? And by that, I mean, is it actually safe? Do you actually enjoy it? 
And are there things that you hope to achieve in life that are not provided by your comfort zone? And then the next question is, what are you willing to pay to get what you want out of life? Because there's a cost to everything. And when, so when I say, what are you willing to pay? I, I'm not necessarily talking about money, although certainly if you're starting a company, there's a financial aspect to that. But there's, a, there's emotional currency involved in deciding to do something different than you're doing right now. And I think that it's regardless of how risk tolerant you are, you need to take a look at what, do you, what you want to achieve in life and what it's going to cost you to get there and decide whether you're willing to pay it or whether there's, you know, a path that'll get you somewhere else that you like or, you know, what your options are. I love that sentiment of is your comfort zone actually comfortable and I think that applies even to people who are thinking of moving between different jobs right uh, is mm-hmm. what you said of are is it gonna is this particular position going to challenge me the same way to get me to where I want to go eventually um, and I think that message is so powerful even beyond that transition from being employed to working for yourself and it sounds like, you know, you're really good at, at being able to determine what's important to you at any given point in your career. And that to me is something that's really admirable because I don't think a lot of people have that level of introspection to say, this is what I need right now, or this is how I'm going to chart towards my future plan. So that to me is, is something that really stands out from your story. Let's talk a little bit about moving out of being a founder and then going back into the workforce. What was that like? It was hard. So, I mean, if, if you start out with just being a founder, I, as I'm sure you're aware, like I, I experienced being a founder is uh, deeply unsafe and, uh, and building the emotional reserves that I needed in order to lead myself and my company through incredible changes and, and through that building period was extremely difficult. And so I, when I did make the decision to leave and left the company, it was, it was very strange because I had spent so much time um, reframing who I was and, and, and the way I talked to myself and the way I experienced my interactions with the people who worked for me. And then the prospect of going back into the workforce and working for somebody else again was really, um, it was intimidating. When, you know, not, not that I want to say that I always know what to do because I don't, but just the prospect of going and working for someone else in a situation where I actually didn't have to figure out what to do was more unsettling than I expected it would be. Intimidating wasn't the word that I, I was expecting to hear. Um, I mean, obviously change is, is never easy, um, mm-hmm. but that that is something that i never would have expected just even hearing how you talk about your career but i guess that that change was bumpier than maybe what it first appears well i think part of it was the decision to leave my company was a really really difficult one i didn't want to i loved being a startup founder i loved my company i loved the people that worked for me i loved what we were doing um, I didn't have to have to leave. I made a choice. However, it was a really difficult one and it was very, um, very emotionally fraught and it felt like failure. 
And so I think that even though, you know, looking back on it now, I, I don't think I made the wrong decision. I'm quite confident that this was the right direction for, for myself and for my family. Um, it, it still felt like failure. Whereas leaving my job at the telco and moving into startup felt like hope. And so I think that is the difference between those two transitions. Mm, this idea of failure. Um, do you still carry that today? No, I think there's a few things. I think the word failure is uh, it's a pretty fraught one, <laughs> ultimately. Um, there's this idea, of course, in startup that you want to fail fast and learn from it. But I think that's a very specific type of failure. And it's also a specific type of being able to capture appropriate information for later on. This felt like um, like I failed myself. And I it took a while to work through it. I think that I think it was a really valuable emotional exercise for me. And I think that the fact that I had the opportunity to push myself as hard as I had. And to learn the things that I did, and I was able to carry those things into my next role, that actually feels like success. But I also think that one of the things that I learned from that is that success doesn't always feel like success. Sometimes the things that are the toughest are the things that really challenge you to become your best. And even if at the end of the day, the byproduct of it is, let's say, unfinished business, or, you know, sometimes you're on a job, and maybe you did something that just was not good. (laughs) And and (laughs) for whatever reason, let's say, you know, you get terminated, right, that actually could be the greatest catalyst for you to learn. And that to me is important to recognize. And a, a lot of people don't think about the careers that way, right? Um, so I, I, I can, I can really appreciate that sentiment. Um, you've now worked, you know, for yourself, you've worked for smaller companies, you've worked for larger companies across different verticals. How do you think somebody who's maybe earlier in their career and trying to figure out like, what do I want for myself? How do we decipher the type of role or the size of company that might be the right fit for them? Do you think that's something that is easily explored? Is that something that someone can figure out right off the hop? Or is it something that you just kind of have to hit those walls to, to figure out what's the right fit for you? I hate to say it, but I really do think that trial and error is the only way to learn what makes you happy. <laughs> it's important for people to grab opportunity when it shows up. And it's not always easy to recognize opportunity. So I think the, it, again, like I, it's always this audit approach that I take, which is what do I want? What do I think I want? And why am I not doing that? So if you take a look at, you know, I don't know, like say I want to make macrame owls or something. And I, but I'm not doing anything about it. I'm just like looking up macrame owls on Pinterest. Um, is there a reason I'm not doing that? Am I actually interested? in macrame? Or is this just a story that I'm telling myself to explain why I feel unfulfilled? We all tell ourselves stories about who we are and what we're doing. But I think that what the way you start is by stripping away what you actually want. Is this, um, is this something that you really want? And if it is something that you really want, why aren't you doing it? 
And that doesn't necessarily have to be something that you're always doing in your career. But I think that anything that you love doing that you can get paid for will eventually make its way into your career. I would agree with that assessment. Um, is that process of auditing and, and asking yourselves these prompts, is that something that you've personally gone through yourself? Do you do it with someone else? Do you audit it by like brain dumping everything onto a document? What's your process like when you're trying to make these decisions through an audit or you know assessment of where you are, what your skills are, what you want? How do you approach all of that? I think it's probably less directed than I make it sound. I have a lot of conversations with people that I trust. I try and um, incorporate things that I don't know much about, but I'm interested in into my life to see whether my interest is superficial or not. So I've spent a lot of time you know, learning about product development or learning about business systems because I want to know how deep my interest is. And because I'm superficially interested in everything, it makes it actually really difficult to tell where my true interests lie sometimes. It also is one of those things that I think needs to be an ongoing process. Mm-hmm. Right. It, it's not something that is a one and done or only when you're evaluating transitions as to whether or not these things interest you or these skills are what you actually possess. I think it has to be an ongoing process, which makes it a little bit harder sometimes to have a structure to it necessarily. Mm-hmm. It should be something that's at the top of your mind and you're, you're thinking about it um, or even you know, being influenced by Experiences like appearing on a podcast and going, well, maybe actually I have these things to say, or these are mm-hmm. philosophies I didn't even know about. I was going through your LinkedIn profile just to get a better sense of your history and what you stand for. And one line in your biography or profile really stood out to me. It read, true innovation and successful operations depend on leadership that focuses on people and how they work the tools they use, and who they serve. I found it to be such a good summary of what it means to innovate and how uh, someone or a company can innovate. Tell me a little bit more about this philosophy and maybe an example of how focusing on people and how they work and the tools they use really help to foster that sense of innovation. I think that everything begins and ends with people, right? People, people who do the work, people who consume your work. Technology for me is, is maybe more of a connector. So when your people are working together in, in, a, in a system that makes them feel safe, then they're willing to take more chances. They're willing to listen more openly and they're willing to embrace change. So as a leader, I think your primary responsibility is to foster emotional safety for your people, which is extremely difficult. But I think that particularly when I'm in a leadership position and I, and I have people who depend on me to allow them to get their work done, I think it's important to recognize that, first of all, my job is to get out of their way. It's to get other things out of their way. 
And it's to make sure that they feel safe when they're doing their work. And I think that those are the, those are the key components to fostering an environment in which people can be creative. I love this idea of safety and creating an environment of safety for everyone emotionally, uh, obviously financially <laughs> as mm-hmm. well. That is the role, I think, a lot of the times of, of a manager is, is to remove these roadblocks and to empower everyone else to do their best work. That's something that I, I, had, I, I think I've come to learn as a leader myself, but is something that I'm still grappling with because as an you know independent contributor on a team you're quite tactical and you're thinking about how do i solve problems in front of me um and then when i was transitioning into becoming a leader now those types of problems that i'm solving are completely different and mm-hmm. the purpose of those of that problem solving is also completely different it was definitely a tough transition for me to reframe that and go oh, my team is actually now my client and in, in a lot of ways, right? I'm serving mm-hmm. my team. And that is something that I think a lot of young leaders need to hear, myself included, to be reminded of that. Yeah, and I, I think part of the difficulty too is that many, uh, many of us, myself included, first uh, promotion to manager is because you're very good at being an individual contributor. And when you're rewarded with promotion for being really good at one specific thing, your sort of internal assumption is that you should keep doing that thing instead of watch someone else do it. And you, and it's easy to feel really displaced when now your job is to watch someone else do your old job in different ways and potentially better than you did. Mm-hmm. And, and to be pleased about that. Yes, and and to authentically celebrate that. Yeah, it, and it's a very difficult transition. And I think, you know, leadership is an extremely different skill set than the skill that got many of us noticed in the first place. Yeah, for sure. And as a hiring manager for you, how do you when you're, let's say, looking for someone on your team, what are some of the things that you're looking for? Yes. I I mean, I'd like to start this off with, I totally disagree with standard recruitment practices right now. I don't think that anybody is served by this whole resume, complete power and balanced interview process, and and then a selection process that rarely has anything to do with the people who are either going to be doing the work or the people who define the work to be done. Um, so that's, that's my caveat is I think that there, there's gotta be a better way of doing this. And now when I'm in an interview and I'm interviewing people, typically what I'm looking for is I want somebody who understands why they're there. Like, why do they want this job? I'm looking for somebody who understands how they can bring value and want to be in an environment where they are not micromanaged and they're willing to reach out when they need help. I'm really curious to hear about your perspective on recruitment. Is there a way that you think it should be done differently? And if you had it your way, how would you do it? As a candidate, you know, as a job seeker myself, my resume looks like a 
like a patchwork, you know, I can make the narrative that I want out of it, but ultimately I have very broad experience across a lot of industries. And mostly job descriptions are written for people who have a specialization or who have had a more linear career trajectory, either within one industry or within one, one sort of company, depending on what they're looking for. Um, so actually, as, uh, as I would say, a, a business generalist with a deep interest in tech, I don't show up well on paper for these types of job descriptions. And so most of the roles that I have successfully garnered have been through networking, um, through people who understand that the, the value that I, bring, that I bring actually is a different perspective, a focus on people, and I'm excellent at complex business systems and big picture creative problem solving. Those are my differentiators, but they're hard to sell when your job description is for, say, a program director. <laughs> But I actually think that we can't underestimate the value of networking, but by networking, I don't mean disingenuous conversations where you try to impress people because you think they can get you a job. I'm talking about looking for real connections that reflect what you're interested in. I don't know how to fix the system that we have, but I think that acknowledging that I don't show up beautifully in a resume no matter how well it's written. When we're, when we're looking at comparing to a specific job description is an important place to start. And then acknowledge that when I am operating in that system and I am interviewing, I, I had a, a ton of interviews for three separate roles that I was interviewing for in the fall. What I'm looking for is if I'm interviewing, then I'm convinced that the person has the skill set that they need for the job. I'm just looking to see whether I can work with them. You know, how, how are they going to work? What are they interested in? Do they like to think out of the box? Are they excited about the job or is it just another one? And uh, that's not to say that needing a job isn't a, like a real practicality that I completely understand. Um, I've definitely been a job seeker where I needed to find a job in short order. But ultimately what I'm looking for is that the person across the table understands that I'm a human being and I'm just looking for someone to work with. For sure. I, I, I agree in a lot of ways with the sentiment of you can't just look at someone's resume and go, yes, this person is perfect for the job because there's so much context that we can't get on a piece of paper. And I think that informs a lot of how I hire as well, like when you look at my team at Inkbox, it's pretty diverse. We have people that come from all different backgrounds. Not everyone has a background in customer facing work. Some people were in operations and no systems and can handle shipping it, like nobody's business. Uh, I have people that are from marketing who, you know, can help with outbound communications, can help with the sense of community building. And sometimes I think as a hiring manager, it's also really important for you to be able to make those, to connect some of those dots and go, these are some other gaps that may not be able to be filled with someone that might have a more traditional lens to the role that I'm hiring for. Um, do you find yourself doing that as well? Or do you take a different approach when you're screening resumes, for example? So it, to be honest, it depends on the role that I'm in. 
when um, when I was leading my company, I was really intentional about the team that we were putting together um, because, I mean, in startup, you need people to pull along with you so that you can get somewhere. And uh, And I think that in a lot of circumstances, overall hiring strategy is overlooked because your end goal, of course, is a team that can grow together and that has a breadth of skill sets and that um, that complements one another. However, hiring is often done on a case-by-case basis where you, know, you have a candidate pool, you pick the candidate that you think is going to be best for the role, and then you, you, know, you have some sort of minor considerations on the side about, well, is the team going to get along? But I think that when you're, when you're advertising for a role, part of the consideration needs to be, what other gaps do I have? Can that be addressed with a person with the skill set for this role? And that should be an ongoing, like a, an ongoing reevaluation. I think that it's something that's really important for hiring managers to bear in mind is what, what's the objective, not just of the role, but of the team. And how successful is your team in achieving those objectives right now? And is there a better way? I, I, I love that. Um, thinking about hiring, not just for the individual role, but thinking about it as a larger piece of the puzzle for the team or for the company. Um, that's really, really insightful. I'm going to end off our, our episode by asking you to tell us one of your favorite stories either as a job seeker or as a hiring manager about an interview process or an interview question that really stood out to you, um, what comes to mind? I like to ask people about a time they failed in, in job interviews because it gives you really good insight on, first of all, what do they consider failure? And second of all, how comfortable are they being vulnerable? And third of all, it helps me learn how they recovered from that or what they learned. And I think that it's really important to understand who people are when they come and they, and they work for me. And, uh, and of course I work for other people. I had, uh, I had a question asked to me in the last couple of years, which was, if you get this job, what will you be thinking about the night before you start? Oh, I know. I, and I thought that that's really interesting. I didn't have a, a huge insightful answer. I was just, I get nervous the night before I start a new job, just like anybody else. And I'll probably be thinking about how do I get stuff done? How do I get the information that I need? And, and I'll be worried about making stupid mistakes because I worry about that. But I thought it was a fun question. I liked it. Yeah, I, I don't think I've ever heard that question before. That's a good one. I, I really like it too. <laughs> yeah. um, do you find that people sidestep the question about kind of their weaknesses or mistakes that they've made and being truly vulnerable? Is that something that yes. you see a lot? Yes, yes, I do. I think a big part of it has to do with the, with the power imbalance in interviews. It makes people really uncomfortable. Part of what I consider a successful interview, if I'm the interviewer, is people leaving the interview calmer than they came in. Interviews are really nerve-wracking. A lot of people struggle with, at the very least, having, having a coherent conversation with a stranger wherein you're expected to sell yourself and your skill set. So 
Um, I like to try and make things seem more conversational, but yes, they, they do sidestep it depending often actually on how comfortable I'm able to make them feel. So I, I also use it as a barometer for how I'm doing. So if somebody tells me a story about how they attached the wrong document and circulated it uh, to, to an email to leadership, like on an email to leadership, um, and then we're, you know, we're embarrassed, but the document wasn't, you know, confidential information and there really were no consequences. I don't consider that a failure. I, that's just an oversight. Um, and, but if somebody tells me a story about, you know, wanting to get their pilot's license and failing at it six times in a row and then finally getting that, that's, that's a real story. Yeah. And I don't think a lot of people would go there. I've definitely seen people answer questions like, you know, what's the greatest mistake you've made at work or at your previous job? And someone w would try and sidestep that. Um, and mm -hmm. that can be quite damaging, I think, to to your credibility. And and granted, I understand, like I empathize with with job seekers like that is not an easy thing to yeah. to approach and come out the other side feeling like you didn't just bomb the interview, right? That that's a very common fear. But I always challenge people to maybe much like what you would do when you're thinking about storytelling and the things that had gone really well in your career think about one or two stories where you did have a terrible day at work and mm -hmm. what was that like and being honest with that you know even if you need to come up with a more positive angle eventually to say like this is what I learned or this is how I I came out of that um, at least you're not going to be blindsided by these types of questions that get more at your at your weaknesses or your mistakes. Um, yeah, and I yeah. and part of the reason I ask these questions too is that I tend to work on on uh, high level like key initiatives, like high stakes, high visibility um, transformation projects, and there's a lot of pressure. <laughs> I need to know how people are going to handle failure because I'm more than willing to help my people work their way through disappointment and tough deadlines and, and that type of thing. But when you work on, on high stakes projects, it's important to understand, first of all, that people have experienced failure because it, it'll happen. And second of all, that they understand what failure is and can learn from it. For sure. For sure. So the, there is really a lot of utility behind asking those types of questions. There are, you know, there are a lot of bad interviewers out there. Um, and I'm not saying that to position myself as a really excellent one. I'm just saying that I've had some bad interviews where, you know, people are asking certain structured questions, but don't appear to know why they're asking those questions. Like, what are they trying to get out of it? Mm -hmm. And I think that as a job seeker, it can be very frustrating when you're in a room and you're being asked a bunch of questions that don't appear to have any purpose. So um, in terms of navigating that, I think that all you can do is just gracefully answer questions afterwards and then, uh, and, and then afterwards assess whether you think it's worth your time to work for somebody who's going to ask you stupid questions. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. I feel like more than ever, employers or hiring managers are, are trying almost too hard to find the right candidate right and mm -hmm. and sometimes in that they get lost in the gotcha moments and trying to 
hunt for things that maybe they don't even know what they're mm-hmm. looking for. Um, and that can be really frustrating. Like I am talking to so many job seekers now that they're going through these insane interview processes, like mm-hmm. eight, nine rounds of interviews with so many different people, like four hours long. And it's like, at some point as an interviewer or as a hiring manager, you have to ask what you need to ask, get the mm-hmm. information that you want to get and then make the decision. Right. And, yep. and asking additional questions because you think you're going to get something different or because you're going to find a weakness in itself mm-hmm. isn't helpful to anybody, especially not the people that eventually will be your colleagues. Yeah, I totally agree. I think this this whole the COVID environment has been really weird for everybody. You know, as as uh, companies looking to hire, they'll post a job and you'll get 400 candidates. I think part of this, like nine rounds of interviews, is just analysis paralysis, trying to get past. Well, how do we deal with 400 candidates? Hmm. But I mean, the reality is you you can't, and you you just need to figure out how you're going to get past that. Because if you're interviewing and interviewing and interviewing and not making a decision, there's a cost to the company and there's a cost to you. Exactly. Exactly. Listen, Catherine, this has been a very, very insightful conversation. I I think it's probably one of the ones where we dive a little bit deeper into theory and, and our philosophies. And I really enjoyed it. You're such a thoughtful leader and just a really cool person to to chat with. I I really really enjoyed it. So thank you so much for for being on the show and for sharing your insights with everyone who's listening. Thanks so much for having me. I had a great time. So that's my chat with Catherine. Super insightful, right? I love the way that she talked about transition and really creating those career themes. And it was really cool to have a heart-to-heart about the things that we both understand about the hiring process and how we think certain things could change. I really, really enjoyed this and hope you did as well. If you haven't already, please subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen to your podcast, and follow me on LinkedIn, Marco Yim, and check out our website at extempra.com. We'll see you again next time. Bye now.